start with a quick little background on me. Growing up, every summer, my dad would load up my brother and I into the back of the station wagon. No seatbelts, just throw mattresses into the back of the seatbelt or back of the station wagon and drive three days from southern Idaho to deep south rural Arkansas, like outside of Little Rock, Ozark Mountains, to visit my mom's side of the family, my grandparents, my granny and pop. And I love my grandparents. They are like legit deep south Ozark hillbillies. Everything, when I say hillbilly, that is my family on my mom's side. And my granny, she's the type of grandma that all moms dread. She had this like two foot by four foot by three foot deep cabinet chalk full of bags of every kind of candy bar that you can possibly imagine. And every time my mom said, no more candy bars, granny would be like, Danny, come here, shh. And she'd just sneak me little piles of candy bars all day long. I loved her so much. In her youth, she was a woman of real extravagant grace and beauty. You know, one of those women from the 30s and 40s where you're just like, wow. And well into her aged years, she was just absolutely stunning. Now, my grandfather, my pop, pop was the epitome of traditional American masculinity as it was once so respected within our culture. He was a semi-pro baseball player turned uh, our, uh, Air Force chief. He was a double retiree from the Air Force. And when I remember being little and my pop would pick me up and hug me, it felt like I was being crushed by like a pillar of stone. He was just so strong. And pop would always build like all of these neck breaking devices out in the woods behind his house. Like think zip lines and bag swings. If you don't know what a bag swing is, you just got to go to the south and get on a bag swing at least once in your life. He'd take Troy and I out water skiing from literally sunrise to sunset. And he had this mischievous streak that always kept us in a trouble, tons of trouble with granny and with mom. It was so much fun. And so both of my grandparents, my granny and my pop, they're both uh, on the cusp of 90. Pop turns 90 in October. And I've just really been feeling pressed. Like, I need to get back to Arkansas. And so I, I took some time last week and I flew to Little Rock. And I went to spend some time with them. And... The words of the prophet Isaiah uh, are bearing true in the lives of my grandparents. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Now, i got to be honest with you guys. It was difficult to see what age does to the human body and to the human mind. My granny, she is skinnier than my pinky, frail. And she just literally sits all day, not saying a word, just staring at the TV, watching whatever random show is on. She doesn't say a whole lot. And all of that kind of spunkiness has really dissipated from her life. And my pop had a stroke about a year ago. So he kind of wobbles about the house like a drunken sailor now. He's all shriveled up. At one point, he actually took a pretty nasty spill. And I literally had to pick the man up. I had to pick my pop up. And it, it, it bothered me. It, it grieved me deeply in my spirit. And so I was meditating in this passage that I wanted to teach, and I had an entire sermon prepared that we may teach next week that went a totally different route, but I was so grieved by my grandparents and their, their ailing, aging years and what it's doing to them that as I was reading along in this passage on Wednesday morning for probably like the hundredth time, I read in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. Eternal life. Unfading, unfalling, never-ending. I give to my followers 
a life that will not end. And so that is our big idea for the morning. I got stuck in it, and I had to write about it. I had to meditate on it more deeply. Those two words, eternal life, the grass withers and the flower will fade, but Jesus promised us something beyond our comprehension, something beyond all of this on into eternity. Now, for some of us, mature Bible believers, this may be like Christianity 101 for you this morning. (laughs) You may find yourself saying, what a basic belief. Of course, we all know that we're going to live forever as we follow Jesus. But John, the author of this gospel, I think he gives us a warning not to tune out just because we think that we've mastered the basics of Christian belief. You guys need to understand that one of the tragic ironies in Jesus' opponents, the people that most messed up with him and opposed him most vigorously, they were Bible experts. (laughs) They had it all figured out. And yet, because they had it all figured out, they missed the most basic and obvious promises of Scripture, and that in turn caused them to misinterpret Jesus and caused them to actually resist Jesus as Bible specialists. That's terrifying to me. In verse 24, they come to Jesus challenging him. They say, how long will you keep us suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. So what Jesus had done is he had proven himself and made himself clear. But because these Bible specialists, through their arrogance, had it all figured out, rather than falling at the feet of their Savior, they misinterpreted him and resisted him. So we must be careful as Christians that we don't let our hearts grow hard because we've mastered the basics. Because we know what the Bible says and we don't need to meditate and chew on these things more deeply. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are always working to clarify even the most basic doctrines of Christianity to bring them to greater life in our hearts, to bring them to greater fruition in the course of our days. And so this extended meditation on the doctrine of eternal life, it may seem elementary to some of us, but I'm almost guaranteeing some of us are going to be discovering this morning, oh my gosh, I have not been believing this concept, this idea about eternal life in the right way. I've been thinking about it all wrong, or even more likely for probably 100% of us this morning, including me, my belief, our belief in eternal life, it is not affecting us and transforming us the way that Jesus intends it to affect us and transform us. You guys ready to jump into this? 30 minutes of meditation on eternal life. All good? Let's rock and roll. Number one, write this down if you're taking notes. Eternal life is happening right now. It starts right now. You and I are eternal creatures. There is no living human being that will not exist for all of eternity. The Christian teachings on eternal life, they have saturated our Western culture. And so, really, we are hard-pressed to find a person who doesn't at least have this idea that after you die, you either go to heaven or to hell. Now, of course, so many in our society don't believe that, but it's still in the kind of cultural imagination. It's still kind of in the cultural air that we breathe. And so both the culture and the church has framed eternal life in all of these different ways, all of these different forms, but these ways and forms that the culture and the church has framed eternal life have often strayed from the vision of the gift that Jesus gives to us. Jesus' worldview was thoroughly biblical, and the Bible presents a picture of eternal life that starts 
now, in this moment. Jesus did not think of eternal life as something that we would get in the future, but he thought of it as starting here now. And so the nowness of eternal life, it exists in two specific ways if you're taking notes. Number one, eternal life exists now as a gift given to us through faith in Christ. And number two, eternal life exists or manifests through our obedience in the present moment as a picture or as an expression of what will be perfected and completed in the kingdom to come. Did that all make sense? Eternal life starts now as a gift from God in this moment. And eternal life expresses itself in the present moment in the world through our obedient acts as expressions of what will be in the future kingdom throughout eternity. The great wonder of Christianity, number one, eternal life is a gift. And the great wonder of Christianity is that God himself had to become one with us. Jesus was eternal God among us. And on the cross, he had to take into himself the sin that destroys life. And so, eternal life is not something that's based on our works. It's something that is received because of the work of Jesus. Eternal life is a gift that is given to us as we trust him and as we surrender to him as our Lord. And eternal life is present in us right now. You and I as believers, if you're a follower of Jesus, eternal life is present right now because the eternal spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in us. Here's how St. Paul put it in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Eternal life by the Holy Spirit as a gift is in you right now. Eternal life exists and is begun in you. Second, though, and this is more important, I think, for us to get our heads around, eternal life manifests in the present moment in this world through yours and through my obedience. Our obedience does not earn us eternal life. That's wrong team. That's not Christianity. That's religion. That's whatever you want to call it. But we obey because we have received the gift of eternal life. We obey the spirit who indwells in us and guides us and inclines us and convicts us and corrects us and comforts us. We, we obey the spirit in accord with the scripture. And those each act of obedience to God in the scriptures is a present in this moment expression of how you and I will be for all of eternity. Not at me if that makes sense. I so want us to get this concept. It's so important. Every time we obey the scriptures by the power of the Spirit, we are in the present moment doing what we will be doing perfectly through all of eternity. So as we flesh this out, we need to understand that from the moment that Adam and Eve from the moment that they disobeyed in the garden, their humanness, their humanity was diminished in some degree. Disobedience to God diminishes the fullness of our humanness. And so every point of disobedience to God, it diminishes the life that God intends humans to live. And death, physical death, is the ultimate diminishment of life as a result of sin and disobedience. Death is the ultimate dehumanizing of a human. It's why when I had to pick up my pop, that pillar of stone, I felt like he was being dehumanized. And as we'll see next week in John 11, Jesus, when he weeps over that, is actually angry about death. 
He opposes it. Death is not a natural transition to what's next. That is a ridiculous cultural conception that we have absorbed. Death is God and your enemy, period. And so we must trust Jesus who did for us what we couldn't do. We must trust in his perfect life that we could not live as our representative. And we must trust in his death in our place and his resurrection. All these things that we couldn't champion ourselves, he championed for us and became our victor. But now, out of that gifted life, every single time you and I choose to obey in any given moment, you become a little more fully human as God intended you to be. Every tiny moment of outward and inward obedience to the scriptures, to God himself by the Spirit, makes you just a little more fully you in the moment. Makes you a little more what you will be throughout all of eternity. Uh, John Pennington is a New Testament Matthew scholar and a colleague and somewhat friend of mine. He calls these acts of obedience, he says, he calls these active, these active moments of obedience righteous whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. So our obedience here and now, your obedience, it's a forerunner of what the perfect kingdom obedience will be like throughout all of eternity. Now, follow with this. Because the inverse is true. The opposite is true. Every act of disobedience is a present forerunning picture of eternal disobedience. Every act of rebellion or denial of God's will in a human's life is a present embodiment of a future complete denial of God for those that refuse to yield to Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is where we get into the very uncomfortable topics of hell. Every sin that we commit is actually a reflection. It's an inbreaking of a future hell. Let me just explain this more thoroughly. All of us are all presently embodying on some spectrum with every decision we make. We're either embodying in this moment a little more heaven, a little more fully ourselves, or a little more hell, a little less truly ourselves as God created us to be. Because we're deciding to do things our own way and denying God's will for our lives. This means, and this is where we're going to have to shift some paradigms, that eternal life is as much a state of existence as it is a place that we go to. Eternal life is, is as much a state of existence that we live in as it is a place that we end up going to in the future. So let me, let me deconstruct some of our collective imagination. Whenever I say hell, in our collective imagination, we all picture these kind of medieval paintings it's a dark cavern, and it's dark, but there's also fire there. I don't know how there's fire there, and it's also dark all at the same time, but somehow they do that. And it's usually overseen by a skinny little red man in red spandex, and he's got a plastic pitchfork, usually like a tall boy of Bud Light and Metallica blaring in the background. Like, this is our imagery of hell. Jesus did use images of darkness and fire to describe hell. But Jesus was describing a state of being as much as he was describing a place. Track with this. When a human, when a human over and over and over chooses that they will do things their own way, God has given us the ability to make decisions. And when a human decides over and over, I will define, 
I will do as I will. I do not want to trust Jesus. I do not want God to influence my will or my way of life. Then hell, not as punishment, but hell is the result of that series of ongoing decisions all the way into eternity. Listen, hell is hell because a human gets in full what they wanted and only got partially in this life. Namely, an eternal existence devoid of God and his will. Hell is hell because it is an eternal existence of no God. No God's will. No God's presence. And this is why Jesus said that that life is a life of darkness. It's a life that burns. It's a life that is never satisfied. It's a life, it's a life of thirsting continually for something that you just can't find who you are, who you want to be. You can't find contentment. You can't find peace. Hell is the result of that over and over and over all throughout eternity, never being quenched. And it's agony because you and I were created to be one with God and in perfect obedience to his will. Hell is the exact opposite of that. Hell is the exact opposite of that. And so, let's turn and talk about heaven. (laughs) Because our concept of heaven is just as malformed. I think that Jesus' worldview on hell is way more terrifying than handlebar mustaches and red spandex. I really do. And I think it should strike a deep moment of us saying, whoa, whoa. This is no game. But when we turn our eyes to heaven, I think when we turn our eyes to the reality of eternal life in the good place, as a state of existence, it fuels us with an unimaginable joy and passion and hope. First of all, with heaven, and this may just shock some of us, and most of you, most of you may already understand this, heaven is not the end of everything. Heaven isn't the end. The end of the New Testament, the end goal of Jesus coming to earth was to reunite heaven with earth. (laughs) The end of everything is not heaven. The end of everything is heaven reunited with earth. Jesus' mission was to reunite God's relationship with all of creation, with all of humanity. And so what God is doing, the end goal of all things, is God is recreating a new garden of Eden, a garden garden city of sorts, where his presence is once again fully known by humans, fully obeyed, unashamed, naked, all the stuff that the garden was. This is what heaven will be on a real earth, in real bodies, touchable, tangible, real stuff like where I am right now, only perfected forever because of Jesus' obedience and my obedience to him through my life. The entire book of Revelation, you guys, is not about some sort of kind of ethereal, transcendent reality that we escape to in a disembodied state. The entire book of Revelation is about God's real tangible kingdom coming and conquering evil and death and darkness here on earth and reuniting the two. And so heavenly eternal life, it is this embodied state that we all live in right now that is imperfect because we're in these broken bodies that are fading and withering but that will be perfect in the resurrection. Now, did you guys all track with that? Again, just a nod from the head. Okay. So we have a shift from it's a place, it's a state of existence, it's happening now. Our acts of obedience are actually ushering into the world, heaven on earth. Every act of obedience is ushering in, it's manifesting heaven on earth. In your soul, you're becoming more fully you with every act of obedience. And every act of disobedience is diminishing who you actually are, 
who God actually made you to be. And in his infinite love, he says, I will not let you destroy yourself. I love you too much, like grabbing a toddler who's making a run for the street, saying, no, I don't want you, Dad. I want to do what I want. God comes and he says in Jesus, nope, I'm going to grab you, bring you in, draw you into myself, and I'm going to take the bus that you were running for into myself so that you will live. All of that makes sense. Now, out of that, we go forward and we live this eternal life now. But let me ask this question as we turn the corner and get ready to wrap up. Is the doctrine of eternal life changing the way that we live and think in our daily lives? We Bible masters. We Bible specialists. We who have more podcasts and more seminaries and more theological books than any church human in the history of the church. We who have mastered divinity. That's what they said when I graduated with my MDiv. I have, ma- I have a master's of divinity. What in the world does that actually mean? Uh, is eternal life changing the way that I think about my life and live my life here and now? Am I living like I will never die? Am I actually living that out? Let's frame this in the terms of the world just to make this concrete for us because sometimes eternal life is so abstract. If you knew that next year, it was absolutely certain, no question about it, you were going to be written a check for $10 trillion. $10 trillion. Yeah, oh, now everybody's like, oh, let's go. Yeah, $10 trillion. Right, that's what I'm saying. The endorphins, everything in your body just all of a sudden shifted. $10 trillion, that sounds pretty good. But when I say eternal life, like, yeah, I believe that. Great. Whatever. <laughs> what is wrong with us? $10 trillion. And as well, you get to dip into that bank while you're in this life, this year. You get to dip into that bank anytime you want and draw out. Every act of obedience is drawing out of that $10 trillion. Let me just ask you, if that was true, feel those endorphins rise, would anybody leave this gathering having discovered that you now are going to be given $10 trillion and you can draw from it all this year every time you obey? How would your anxiety levels be this year? What would be your focus? What would be your pursuit? How would you look at other people? Do you think that you might be excited about telling somebody about the idea that you got $10 trillion? Just, just think through this, because I have really been thinking a lot about this. I've been in the church for 20 years. I've been a senior leader in this community of people in the church, in the Lord's church, for 20 years. And I'm telling you that this, this doctrine sits at the horizons of my mind most of the time. It doesn't, it doesn't really affect me. Eternal life, this idea that I am going to live forever in everlasting joy without pain or suffering. I'm going to live with perfect provision and total security. It will never end. It surpasses $10 trillion by an immeasurable magnitude. And so when Jesus says, I give eternal life, he gives you something so categorically huge and so world-altering that it's virtually incomprehensible. And maybe that's why it sits at the horizons of our mind. Because to really believe it is so earth-shaking, soul-changing. We can barely stand it. It's so much. You guys realize that those who lived life with eternal life at the foreground of their mind, they are the ones that change the world. They are the ones that change the world. Our Christian family throughout history and all around the globe right now, there are pastors in North Korean prisons who are holding on to eternal life as they share with their flock from memorized scriptures. 
There are women going out in Iran right now in full head covering, full face covering, to go and share the gospel, knowing that they may be martyred, killed for their faith. You know why they do that? Because they believe that they are not going to die. They actually believe it. They believe it. And so our family throughout the globe endures unimaginable suffering with this unwavering hope and really a ludicrous joy that is fueled by their belief in the resurrection. You know, this last year through 2020, it's been rough. COVID and plague and police and, and our African-American and black brethren and sisters and, and politics. And yet we, the Christians, should see through this lens of all will be well as I manifest obedience here and here and here and here with a ludicrous joy. A joy that just smashes people in their anxiety and fear and pain with an overwhelming sense of peace. You know, today is the last day of Black History Month. I really want to encourage you guys. I did this myself last Thursday. Take time and look up some of the old gospel slave hymns, the slave hymnals that created the black gospel music that, that we have in this day. Those songs are replete. That is, they are full of songs about eternal life coming. Life that is focused and lived with joy, even in the midst of their horrific oppression, looking to this life that we've actually been given. Generosity. Christian generosity has always been motivated by an eternal view. Always. We don't live for this world and its glory. That's why we're taking this entire week of Lent to meditate on detachment. Am I so attached to this world that is fading and withering away? So anxious to make my way and make my name and make my kingdom in this world that I have forgotten that I'm actually on my way to a kingdom that will never end, ever. It will never end. I have not been this up in a long time, and I'm not going to apologize. It just, it seems ridiculous to me. I was like just kind of slapping myself in the face this last week, like, what is your problem? You're going to live forever. This is crazy. St. Peter said to his communities dispersed throughout Asia Minor, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I am convinced for myself, and I would invite you to join with me, that we need to repent in Western Christian thinking. We need to repent because we are so affluent and comfortable, and for the most part, we face such minimal persecution for our faith. We are literally outdoors blasting the gospel through the neighborhood right now. While brothers and sisters of ours are cloaked in secrecy, desperate to not be found out as they share the truth of eternal life because they know they will die for it. I think that we need to repent of trying to make this life as comfortable and secure as possible. Jesus, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that this life was about heaven coming to earth through our obedience, and he knew, and this is, the, this is what we're going to really close with. Jesus knew that this life, our short 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, if you're like the McElhannons on my mom's side, 100 years, which is not even the glimmer of a glimmering of a glimmering of a nanosecond of a quabajillion millionth nanosecond compared to eternity. This life 
That was the scientific term for a short amount of time. This life is about a shaping and training of our souls to actually be what we're supposed to be in eternity. That's what Jesus knew. Let me explain this. Paul, Paul was addressing the Corinthian church in First and Second Corinthians. They were like this wild, drunken, frat party of a church. They were a complete mess. <laughs> and they were very self-serving. They were divided across ethnic and class lines. There was rich and poor. There were ethnic divides within that church. There was, uh, yeah, there was all sorts of sexual escapades going on in that church. And Paul was just writing this letter saying, guys, come on, come on, come on. And he caps almost every one of his points with, don't you know that you are eternal creatures? And in one section, they're suing each other. They're suing each other. And Paul says this to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Corinthians, neighbors, don't you know that in the kingdom to come in eternal life, you, the Lord's people, will judge the world? And then he makes this crazy little statement. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? To which I respond to Paul like, no, I didn't. Wow, judge angels, what does that even mean? And then he just moves on as if we're just supposed to embrace this idea that we are going to be judging you are going to be co-ruling with Jesus when heaven reunites with earth and the resurrection happens. What God is doing in your life now is shaping you into a benevolent and kind and self-sacrificial ruler like Jesus who will judge the world and judge angels, whatever that means. Paul was saying to the Corinthians and to us, you guys, come on. Don't you know that every moment you give up of yourself, your own rights, you're becoming more fully yourself, and you're suffering like Jesus suffered because you will resurrect like Jesus and rule in life to come like Jesus. Not like a selfish tyrant of this world, but like a selfless, giving good, true human for the benefit of the whole world. Every point of suffering, every moment of loss, every point of pain, God the Father wants to use that to shape and mold your soul into being you, more fully you, in the likeness of Jesus, so that when you raise from the grave, you are a kind and wondrous and self-sacrificial and generous ruler, just like Jesus who saved you. And you're going to judge angels. I used to love that verse. I did a good long stint with demonic oppression and drug-induced psychosis and all sorts of stuff. And I can't wait to get that little line of demons that was messing with me back in the 90s and the early 2000s and just let them have it, like Jesus, because I will have been formed in love. Listen to the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For those of you that are really hurting right now, you're really taking it on the chin. You've been wronged. You want justice. You need, you, you've been hurt, you're, you're struggling to forgive, you've lost, the expectations haven't been met, the dream seems to have died, which is what we're really focusing on next week. Paul says, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, the flower is fading, the grass is withering, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. This is what happened to me. I'm sitting on my couch, I just got done picking up my pop, the man is shriveled and wobbling around like a drunken sailor, and I'm getting more and more sad about it. I go sit down, and I literally am reading and thinking about my pop dying, and I'm like, I'm going to die. My kids are going to die. I'm just like spiraling. And then all of a sudden, I read in John 10, and I give them eternal life and just renewal. It's like I went launching out of my pop's barco lounger and wanted to run around Little Rock. I'm going to live forever. 
My back hurts, but I'm going to live forever. For our light and momentary troubles. Church, light and momentary troubles. For our family that is in prison all around the world right now for the gospel. For people that are being separated from their families and being beaten and wounded because of the gospel. For their light and momentary troubles, St. Paul would say, are achieving for us, for them, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so, this most basic of Bible beliefs... The little flannel graph that we all knew, for those of you that were raised in the church, at five years old, Jesus loves you, this you know, the Bible tells you so, and he gives you eternal life. This most basic of Christian doctrines is so life-altering, perspective-changing, motivating. And the sufferings and the losses of this life, they are all training and shaping our souls to judge the world like Jesus would. We're learning how to be those self-sacrificial, benevolent rulers. Eternal life is now. Every time you obey this afternoon, you are ushering not only the food truck of God's presence, if you were here for that teaching, you are ushering heaven on earth. Brothers, every time you turn that wondering eye to look straight ahead and pray for your future wife or commit more deeply to your celibate singleness, or if you... Or if you're here and you're gay and you turn from that good-looking man, whoever you may be, you are ushering, you are ushering the kingdom of God right into earth. And every time that we allow ourselves to drift into and decide, I will, I'll just do a little bit of greedy, a little bit of lie, a little bit of justification, those are manifestations of what hell actually is. And Jesus saved us from that. But every time we say, Jesus... This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't line up with the way that I feel things are, but I'm going to do what you are telling me to do. I'm going to live by you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey your teachings. Heaven breaks in just a little more fully. We don't need the fame and the glory and the position because we will rise from the dead. And we don't need as much money and comfort as we think we need and pleasure because we know that whatever we lack here will be supplied a million times over throughout the eons, eons, ages to come. We don't fear and strive for security because nothing takes from us what God has given to us through eternal life. There is no suffering. There is no torture. There is no death that can take us from this gift that he's given to us. And so this week, as a tiny little expression, we go out and we embody as best we can in our imperfect states, heaven on earth. We learn to sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed and love like Jesus loved and do what Jesus did because we know in eternity we will be doing that perfectly, more fully human than we could have ever imagined, more fully ourselves. And even though for every single one of us, the sin of our lives is causing our bodies right now to wither and the vibrancy is fading into death, Jesus said, they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Bible basics. Bible basics. Eternal life. Lord, we want to see eternal life, and we want to let it shape our present moment more and more tangibly. Please meet with us this morning as we come to commune with you. Please teach us to love you, 
Please teach us to respond to you. Thank you, God, that for me personally, I don't know where the rest of my family is, but at least for me with my family, I give you thanks that I can't hardly stand still. You've reframed all of 2020 for me in in a single verse. You've reframed the death of my grandparents in a single verse. Lord, you've reminded me what it's like to be saved. I remember so clearly after that first failed suicide attempt, just so wanting to be done. And when you forgave me and said, I'm going to take care of you, I had never felt life. I had never felt so alive, so sure. And you've done that for every single one of us. The flowers are fading. Oh, all these young, these college kids are college children. (laughs) Their, Their lives are fading already. And yet you have saved us. You have saved us. You have saved us. I'm so grateful for eternal life. So grateful. And I want to believe it more deeply. I want to believe it in my bones. I want to believe it in my life, in my heart, in my mind, in my soul. I want to believe it in my neighborhood. I want to believe it when I'm with my friend and when I'm with a foe. I want to believe eternal life is mine. And so bless this community, God, with world-altering, soul-changing Bible basics. I give you eternal life, Jesus says. Thank you so much.